0: You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. This episode is packed with some serious brain food. We're going to be talking about what inflammation actually is and how it contributes to chronic conditions, including obesity. We're gonna be talking about a variety of ways that sleep impacts our health outcomes. We're gonna be talking about some of the most overlooked health ramifications throughout the pandemic. We're even gonna be talking about the shocking science around neuroinflammation. So we're talking about inflammation in the brain and it is a serious issue that's causing all kinds of metabolic problems to boot. So that's just scratching the surface. We're also gonna be talking about how do we optimize our cognitive performance. What is the nutrition around that? And also, like, what is our brain actually made of? So, again, lots of brain food literally is packed into this episode. It's a very, very special reversing the tables interview that I did for my friend Lewis Howes on the School of Greatness. Now, this episode was done in the midst of pandemic times. And so, you're going to hear a thread of that and a thread of empowerment and directive on some of the things that we can really point our attention to. Of course, you know how things have played out, but I think it's a really special moment and a special compilation of insights, science, empowerment, and all the things that we really need now more than ever. So again, really, really excited to be able to share this with everybody. Now when talking about nutrition for the brain, we're gonna be diving in and talking about what creates the structure of the brain itself. But a little added thing right now is what are some of the historically proven we're talking about utilized for centuries, utilized for thousands of years. As far as this category of nutrition that we call nootropics, right? So these nutritional inputs that improve our cognition. And one of the simplest, most time-tested is so often overlooked. And I'm talking about culturally, this is something that a lot of cultures, they just have is built in. It's baked into the cultural recipe. I'm talking about tea time. I'm talking about having tea together. The United States people don't do that. We have a coffee right? And that's wonderful, right? If of course it's not littered with pesticides and low quality sweeteners and artificial, whatever. We're not talking about that. We're talking about doing high quality stuff, but tea is so often looked over. Specifically, there's been a movement, a lot of love for green tea. And I love, shout out to green tea, shout out to matcha green tea. But I think black tea needs to get a little bit more attention because it has a group of polyphenols found in higher concentration than anything else in black tea called theaflavins, And they appear to have some remarkable benefits on our metabolism. Research cited in the Journal of Functional Foods revealed that black tea theaflavins have the ability to literally shift human gene expression to a profile that favors lipolysis. That's the breakdown of stored body fat. But that's one thing. And it's found to support beta oxidation. Which is burning that fat for fuel. So step one is getting the fat unlocked. That's lipolysis. That doesn't mean it's gonna get burned. It can get reabsorbed down the line. But beta oxidation is when the mitochondria is actually using the fat for fuel and it's getting dispersed into the environment. All right. It's no longer you're letting it go. You're not losing the weight, because you know, we tend to try to find stuff that we lose, but we're letting it go. All right, so really, really powerful. Like, how often do you hear about? qualities like this shifting our genetic profile into a state that favors lipolysis and beta-oxidation with these compounds found in black tea. Also, to highlight this, the scientists at the University of Oslo in Norway conducted a double-blind placebo-controlled study that gave participants either three cups of black tea each day or three cups of caffeinated match control beverage. Just find out like, is this oh, is it the caffeine, whatever, or is it something specific about the black tea? What they found at the end of the three month study is that participants drinking black tea lost significantly more weight and had a greater reduction in waist circumference. Truly remarkable, but you also need to keep in mind teas are one of the most contaminated things that's getting distributed in our world today contaminated with toxic molds, heavy metals, microplastics. And most tea companies are simply not testing for these things, but not where I get my tea from. At Peak Life, they do a triple toxin screening for purity, USDA organic in addition, but again, they go an extra three steps with a triple toxin screen. In particular, if we're talking about black tea, check out their peach ginger black tea or their breakfast black tea. These are two of my favorites and their patented extraction process to retain all these vital nutrients they patented tea crystals. There's nobody that does it like Peak. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model. And you get 10% off all of their incredible award-winning tea flavors. All right. 10% off store-wide. That's exclusive. And I mean that exclusive with the Model Health Show. Again, go to peaklife.com forward slash model for 10% off. Now let's get to the Apple podcast review of the week.
1: Another five-star review titled Powerful
0: Conversations by Wendy Nirvana. Thank you. These are powerful and revolutionary conversations, and the podcast are helping me understand more and better about human biology, our body, and life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your voice over on Apple Podcasts. I truly, truly do appreciate that very much. And on that note, let's get to our topic of the day. So in this episode, we're going to be hearing a powerhouse interview that I did for my friend Lewis Howes on the School of Greatness. Again, we're going to be breaking down the science behind inflammation and really look at how is this impacting Our health and wellness, our epidemics of chronic disease, our rates of obesity. And I think it's really going to blow your mind. In addition, we're going to be looking at some powerful facts about sleep and how it impacts different areas of our lives from our cognitive performance to our literal physical performance. We're also going to be looking at, again, how do we actually build our brain tissue? What is our brain actually made of? And this is just scratching the surface on what you're going to learn today. Truly, truly powerful conversation. I think you're going to love it. Check out this incredible
1: interview that I did with my friend Lewis Howes in School of Greatness. I saw a recent stat I want to share with you. By Rand Corporation in 2014, nearly 60% of Americans had at least one chronic condition, 42% had more than one, and 12% of adults had five or more chronic conditions. I'm curious, from your perspective of all the research you've done, why do more than 60% of people have chronic inflammation and in these conditions? Yeah. What's the kind of the root of this? Inflammation is an underlying
0: component of a myriad of different diseases. But we don't tend to think about it because inflammation seems like sort of like a ghost in the machine. You know, it's like, ooh, inflammation. But it truly is, you know, if you look at the root word, you know, coming from the Greek and the Latin, it means to set on fire. Right. And so there are these, flame and these are some of the outward symptoms we might think about. It's just like pain, swelling, bruising, burning, aching, those type of things. But there's a massive the majority of the inflammation that folks are experiencing oftentimes go unnoticed. They're these little kind of chronic low grade fevers or little fires burning that are contributing to a lot of different metabolic disorders. And the reason that our bodies are doing it is really the inflammation is sending out a distress signal. From different tissues to recruit and call in the immune system to support in in defending against infections and repair, and the list goes on and on. Inflammation is actually not a bad thing. It's, right, it's a, a healer. Natural, right, right. if we if we would get a, a wound, we would never heal without inflammation. If we got an infection, it would be deadly without inflammation. It's an important part of our evolution and our health. What's the difference between that and chronic inflammation? Right. So what we generally think about is acute inflammation. When acute. We think about like in like a short term uh intrusion maybe an injury or an infection for example which the inflammation might last a few hours even a few days right but if inflammation is lasting for a long amount of time and also showing up in the wrong places it can be devastating and so now we're talking about chronic inflammation and if we're venturing into chronic inflammation we've got to look at what are the underlying components what is what is creating the fire what is throwing gasoline on the fire as well and so, if we take one of the conditions that you mentioned, so right now here in the United States, we've got about 242 million of our citizens are overweight or obese. 242 Out million. Out of how many? Right around 330,000. 330 I'm sorry, 330.
1: 30, million, so, 200, 240
0: million. million are obese. So, we're looking at somewhere in the ballpark of 70 to even upwards of 80%. How is that of our possible now? Exactly. That how should have we be the gotten question.
1: this far? Yeah. How is it just. Food is too accessible. The wrong kinds of foods are too accessible to so many people now. The, you know, social media, is it laziness? Is it, why have we shifted from being a healthy nation? I don't know, probably 60, 70 years ago to an unhealthy nation. Yeah,
0: it's really a perfect storm of, of all the things. So I, the first thing to look at and to ask is what's going on because our genes expect certain things from us. Our DNA expects certain things to have healthy outcomes or healthy cell replication, healthy expression. And so we've gotta look at what are the things our genes expect of us. Our mm. genes expect us to move, Right. for example. We're the most sedentary culture in the history of humanity and recorded human history. We're the most sedentary culture to ever exist right now, all of humanity, or just USA, right? Especially the US. Right. We're the we're the LeBron James. We're the king <laughs> of sedentary. We're, we're the
1: Homer Simpsons. We're the of... <laughs> <laughs> Don't? Yeah,
0: we're the. You know, we're really leading leading the league in these things, and so that's number one. Also, our genes expect us to get adequate sleep. And this mm. is something that we've talked about multiple times on the show, but this is it's built into our evolution. And if you think about sleep, it's very strange because you're incredibly vulnerable, you're unconscious. You'd think we might evolve out of it just for safety. Uh, but the thing is, so many wonderful, absolutely amazing things take place during sleep that we just haven't found a way to replicate, right? So even with the reduction of inflammation, which we'll talk about more, you know, with, we have microglial cells in our brain, which are, it's kind of the brain's immune system. And it's, it's primarily active when we're sleeping to reduce inflammation, to clean out metabolic waste,
1: and things of the like, so. What what would you say are the five biggest benefits of the greatest night of sleep consistently? Like what are the five main benefits that you get if you get deep REM sleep for seven, eight hours a night consistently, no interruptions, no light exposure, all the things you talked about in your other book, Sleep Smarter, what are the five main benefits that come from that versus you know, interrupted sleep, four hours of sleep, you know, staying up late with the phone, you know, having coffee late at night, all that stuff. What's the benefits? We'll just power power pack bullet point these. Um,
0: number one, and this is because our culture, we are, we, I always like to connect to something visceral mm-hmm. and people, we care about how we look. Of course. Right? <laughs> and so You're younger nobody's, looking. right. Nobody's waking up like, I want to look so old today. I want to get my George Burns on. I want to be as old as possible, or I want to. I want to feel bad today about the way that I, I that I that I look, or they're not waking up like I just want to look terrible and feel terrible today. And I've run in my clinical practice. I never met one person, and people might argue these things and get into a because of our cognitive biases. I've never met anybody who wants to be unhealthy. Right. Every single person wants to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said this is where sleep really comes into the into the fray because over the years, me being a nutritionist, I really, me being a nutritionist, I thought that food was everything, you know, because it was, it was for me, it was my bridge, but there's many paths to the goal. When you're sleeping, it is the most powerful anabolic state that you can be in. So it's just, you're just teeming with what we call these, quote, anti-aging hormones, you know, the release of human growth hormone, for example, that really it's also known as the youth hormone. Yeah. You know, and also with, in that lane of body composition and, and overall health and fitness, researchers at the University of Chicago did a very simple study. They brought folks in and they wanted to see what would happen with their weight loss. They put them on a calorie restricted diet and they wanted to see what would happen with weight loss when they were well rested versus when they're sleep deprived. And so they put them under both conditions. And I love studies that do that. They put people under both conditions to see what would happen. Uh-huh. And so they allow folks to get eight and a half hours of sleep in one phase of the study and they tracked all their metrics, their weight loss, et cetera. And then they sleep deprived them for the other phase. So they was getting eight and a half hours, now they're getting five and a half hours. Tracked all their metrics. Same group. Same group on the same exact calorie restricted diet. Same calories, yeah, everything. But when they were sleep deprived, when they were sleep deprived versus when they were adequately rested, when they were getting enough sleep, they lost 55% more body fat.
1: just by sleeping
0: more. That's crazy. It doesn't even make sense. Were they working out the same or was it like no movement? What was it just like? Everything is the same. same. This is what I love too, it's a ward study. So they're under the conditions where they can track everything. Wow. Now here's another part of the study I don't often talk about is that they actually did biopsies. So they actually took the fat cells cells to see what would happen with their fat cells under the different conditions. And what they came to the conclusion was that your fat cells actually need sleep too. Because when the fat cells were not when, you, when they weren't adequately rested, their fat cells actually became more insulin resistant, which should become like, that should put up a huge red flag because insulin resistance is one of the classic signs is carrying more belly fat, right? So the fat cells themselves, looking at them versus when you're well rested versus when you're sleep deprived, your fat cells themselves become insulin resistant. Mm and it's just gonna to lead to downstream problems with your liver, lipogenesis, the creation of new fat, the list goes on and on. So that's just one, part, one yeah, thing. That's number so one. number one, number two, the cognitive performance. Uh-huh. And I love this study, this was published in The Lancet, and they wanted to see what would happen when physicians, they took physicians and had them com- to complete a task and tracked all their numbers, and they sleep deprived them oh, for 24 man. hours, which is not abnormal in the field of medicine, and had them to complete the same task, which is a simulation of different like surgical type of simulation. Yeah. They made 20% more mistakes doing the exact same thing. And it took them 14% longer to do the exact oh, same wow. thing. Wow. All right. So, and this is a big problem in our culture. Again, we mistake being busy for being effective, right? And so that's a number, that's the number two thing, the cognitive performance. Number three, and this it parallels with cognitive performance, is the health of our brain. And so researchers at UC Berkeley did brain imaging scans. And you know we talked about this before, but yeah. they actually looked at the sleep deprived brain, just again, 24 hours of sleep deprivation. And the part of the brain that's associated with executive function, right? So uh, decision-making, distinguishing between right and wrong, social control. So the prefrontal cortex, the more human part of our brain, that part of the brain goes cold. The activity of that part of the brain just literally as we're more and more tired, just shuts down. With the lack of sleep. And with the lack of sleep coupled with more activity in the amygdala, which is very much more primitive, driven by emotion, mm-hmm. very much concerned with survival of self. And so that part of the brain just lights up like a Christmas tree or Las Vegas sign, you just came back from Vegas. <laughs> so these changes happen in the brain very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that leads into number well, number three, reduced cognitive performance. Mm-hmm. So being able to manage our emotions, being able to manage our decisions, And then we'll go to number four, it's gonna lean into this as well with the brain function, is I talked a little bit about this earlier. During sleep is when your glymphatic system, which is the brain's waste management management system. Cleansing it all out. It's 10 times more active when you're sleeping than when you're awake. So, and your brain is doing literally trillions of activities every second. And there's a lot of metabolic waste that takes place. And you have to have this cleansing system, this cleaning system, or you're gonna have a buildup of things like amyloid beta plaque, for example, which that is strongly, strongly correlated with Alzheimer's disease. It's an inability of the brain to clean itself mm. and also insulin resistance in the brain we could talk about later. But we're wondering again, why are these issues going up? Why is brain inflammation going up? These are the things. Are we getting enough sleep for the processes that normally just naturally wanna happen? They do it on their own, are we getting that? The final thing. So four is um, the cleansing. Right, right. cleansing cleaning. And so this is associated with disease prevention of the brain, longevity of the brain. And number five, um, you know, this is tough. There's so many different different things that this can benefit. But I would say for me and and you as well, like we want to be able to perform. You know, we want to be able to to use our body and our mind to compete, to get out and and to play, to have a good time. And one of the fun things that i talked about in my, in my first book, Sleep Smarter, was research that was done on basketball players, collegiate basketball players at Stanford. And they found that simply by increasing the amount of sleep that they were getting, not training more, not doing anything else differently, this shaved a full second off of their sprint time, huh. just by increasing their sleep. Wow. They improved, significantly improved their free throw shooting and their three-point shooting wow. just by getting more sleep, all right? And these are things that we just kind of, on a periphery, kind of know that. But at the same time, are we utilizing it? So some of the greatest athletes in the world right now, sleep is a part of their training. LeBron James, it's a part of his training. Usain Usain Bolt, same thing. It's a part of his training. Mm -hmm. Now, Serena Williams, the list goes on and on and on. These things weren't taught to us when we were in high school. It was just like... Get up at 4 a.m. and lift. Yeah, the, right. <laughs> just, go, just go right into somebody, yeah. you know what I mean? Make a play. Make a play. You're Keep gonna your gonna head on a play. swivel. Yeah. <laughs> but today, you know, it's really built into the, into the system. Yeah. Also, the strength training programs are built yep. into the system, um, which is beautiful because, again, when we were in high school, it was very, I mean, some stuff was starting to take place with folks being in the weight room, but it wasn't a big emphasis. Whereas now, if you look at different sports, like a good friend, which I'm... It's so weird for me to say this right now. This is like the coolest thing. I actually got chills. Ozzie Smith, mm-hmm. right? So having the opportunity. Same to with, with Icon, him. man. Icon. icon. When I was a kid, my two idols were Ozzie Smith and Michael Jackson. Wow, yeah. And I tried to wear the Thriller jacket to school <laughs> and I got drove. That was not a good look. But Ozzie Smith could be my role model and I could just, I wanted to, to play. I wanted to compete, yeah, to man. play baseball. And so I actually met him at the gym. And so he was there. I think he was probably in his, Around it in his mid sixties, maybe at the time, um, but he was there getting strong. Like, and he was one of the first, if not the first, high level elite baseball players to really embrace strength training mm. way back in the eighties. Wow. And the reason that he did it, funny enough, was he tore his rotator cuff, and he didn't want to be out. Like, this was back in the day where it's just like literally, you pat, you do whatever it takes to get on the field, and he wanted to be there for his team, and so he just tried had to find out a way to strengthen everything around it. Because he didn't want to have surgery, he would have been out for a year at the time. And now, you know, of course, surgeries have advanced tremendously since then. But, so he found that he strengthened everything in his shoulder, but also he started throwing from a completely different arm angle. And still won 13 consecutive gold gloves. It's crazy. It's crazy, it's crazy. Back
1: flipping at the same time. Right,
0: he's out there back flipping with the glove on. It's cool. It's so powerful. But it's a big part of what our genes expect is to is to be strong in some different domain. And we talked about this before the show, that translates over into our lives mm-hmm. as well, you know? So that strength, if you can train your body and your mind, because your mind is in play too, life gets a little bit easier in many aspects. You know, like you feel more physically ready to handle whatever life throws at mm-hmm. you, you know? And so in the context that, that final one is being able to, to perform at a high level, to recover from the training that we do, all the magic happens when you're sleeping. Absolutely. When you're up in the gym and, and training or you're out on the field competing, you're just tearing your body up. That's all catabolic stuff. Yeah. You get the anabolic reward when you go to sleep.
1: When I was interviewing Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist out of uh, Stanford, he was saying that even learning a new skill, it's like the neurons connect when you're sleeping. Like when I do Spanish class sometimes, I'm just like, I'm not getting this. You know, there's moments where like, my am gosh, this hurts my brain. It's so challenging. But then I come back the next day or two days later and I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I've connected the neurons or it's like in your sleep, and things are moving and processing for you to really connect those things you're learning, those new skills, those challenging things. So I think it's, and if I wasn't sleeping, I probably wouldn't connect the dots on a new skill. So something to think about there as well. I'm curious about this. Have you seen a study around, or any research around how our belief about our identity, How we view ourselves in the world whether we think positively of ourselves we have confidence we believe in ourselves or our lack thereof we have a bad view of ourselves do you there any research about how that affects the brain our actual mindset of the brain and ourselves absolutely Absolutely.
0: the the number one driving force of the human psyche is to stay congruent with the ideas that we carry about who we are Uh every every thought that we think every action we take is really correlated with who we believe ourselves to be, and this is why change can be so uncomfortable. You know, when we start to think things that I I don't think that way, or these are things that I don't do, our our physiology, this stuff really gets hardwired mm. into us, and so it creates discomfort because we're literally going to start creating new neural pathways, and potentially start to break down old ones. And a mutual friend, Dr. Caroline Leaf, man, I love She's her great. so much. And she's really brought to the forefront. And I talked a little bit about this in Eat Smart my, in my new book and how our thoughts really affect our biology, even how food affects us based on our beliefs about yes. food. And so one of the biggest things to really come from her work that unfortunately it wasn't embraced, even though she's been in the field for 40 years, she really knows her easy. stuff and has affected so many different lives. But it takes time for kind of collegiate training to, to, to change, for the books to change. But One of the big takeaways is thinking, your your thoughts create your brain. Really? The process of thinking itself is creating your brain. And we think that the brain is in and of itself just kind of offshooting our thoughts. Now we can absolutely have thoughts stored in our brain, but thinking is so much bigger. Our mind is creating our brain. So thinking is a part of the mind, is that right? Also Which, the brain as well. It's both. Yeah, it's kind of within the brain. Then we start to create as She share, shares, I don't know if she did this with you, but she brings up the little trees yes. and all these things. And the branches. And yeah. yeah, so yeah, we yeah. start to create these little with a thought, little thought trees start to bear fruits, but we can supersede it. Your mind is bigger than just your brain. We tend to think that because everything is kind of up here, but our our mind is in our toe as well. And our mind is just in so our gut. much. Yeah, in our gut. I it's Dr.
1: Emron, Emerald Mayer on. yeah yeah. he was guy, talking yeah. about the, the mind in the gut and how yeah. it's all connected to the brain as well the gut brain and the, the brain brain and it's fascinating it's so fascinating. The mind is connected throughout all throughout your body
0: as well yeah So for example, even our heart within the gut, the, the human brain itself is just an a absolute universe of neurons. So it's like 84 billion wow. neurons, right I was thinking about human cells overall. So we have about 84 billion neurons in the brain. We have about 100 million in the gut, all right? So these, this is like nerve tissue. It's like a mass of, of neuro tissue in the gut, but the, the heart also has neurons as well. So when they, it's called, and anybody can go to Dr. Google and look this up, it's called the heart brain, all right? So your brain, your heart actually has this kind of ability to, to think, and there's this electromagnetic energy that it's expressing, and there's a field also, it's uh-huh. called a tube torus that's been monitored, that's expanding beyond our body to be able to see this. And if folks wanna check out the work from HeartMath Institute. HeartMath. HeartMath Institute is phenomenal. I've been, you know, um, probably for about 10 to 15 years uh, connected with, with HeartMath Institute, It's just absolutely phenomenal. So today. there's a
1: field around the heart. Does yeah. that mean like quantum physics we're talking about, or is this something else? Mm. So- What does this feel, An just, energy feel? We'll,
0: we'll keep it real, real simple first, which is if we think about the, elec- the electrical energy that the heart is kicking off, like when, you, when you're mm-hmm. in the hospital, mm-hmm. right? And you see the monitor, mm-hmm. boop, it's not reading the, 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 the smoke coming off your heart, it's reading the electrical energy that's coming off the heart. Right? So we got EKGs and things of that nature so we can read the electrical currency that the body is, is, is throwing off Wow, your body is just teeming with energy and there's even a form of energy that we generate It's called piezoelectricity Right just for moving we're generating energy and electricity So just from a very simplistic level the heart is, is kicking off energy that we can't see that's the thing about it right it's, it's, a, it's emanating from beyond us. Even our skin is emanating energy. We just see a certain spectrum of light as humans. We see a certain spectrum of energy. How far does this
1: energy go beyond the body? So the tube torus is from HeartMath
0: Institute's data and being able to, to measure it and monitor it, it can be upwards of, at last checked around eight feet from your body. And so now this is getting into some freaky stuff, all yeah, right? And I'm a very- me. Give it to me. I'm a very <laughs> logical, analytical human. So seeing is believing for me. But then we get into, there's many things that are just, and also I'm, I'm very open-minded as well. And there's many things that we don't understand. But when we talk about people being in your space and you picking up people's energy and interacting, mm-hmm. and that stuff is very real. You know, you can pick up people's vibes, you know, yes. bad, bad vibes. So we don't wanna downplay that because other, other species of animals, they have that bigger connection. And we can, we can attribute like bees, for example, You know, in this quote hive mind, but we throw that away when it comes to us. Mm. And so for me, for years, I've been seeking to find how can I explain this to people to make sense? Because I'm a very solid thinker. You know, I'm a very logical person. And one of the things I came across was Princeton University researchers. They found that they just took two strangers and they put them together and they had them to just chat. And they found out within a matter of minutes, all they had to do was create some rapport and their brainwave starts to sync up. Come on. Their brain waves started syncing up just by having rapport and talking to another person. We start syncing up. And this is this happens all the time. And also
1: it sounds like if the brain isn't optimized through sleep, through nutrition, through healing the inflammation, the chronic inflammation, if that's not optimized, your mind is not gonna be optimized. Yeah, You're gonna be thinking poorly, you're gonna yeah. be acting poorly, you're going to be tired, all these different yeah. things. So if you want your mind to be sharp, you got to make sure your brain is healthy and recovered and healed. Is that what I'm hearing you say? It's, it's true. If we're just going to be again looking at
0: this from a very foundational, simple mm-hmm. principle, it's much more difficult to think the thoughts that we want to think when we don't feel well. Right. When right. we don't feel well, we start to think bad thoughts. It's just it, it's it, it hard comes together. It's hard. It comes together because of our, <clears throat> so much of our biology is driving our lives. You know how we feel. But this is the thing, and everybody's seeing this example. We can think externally of our biology. We can change our thoughts and change what's happening with our biology instantly because every thought that you think has correlating chemistry that's released. Really? And Give also, me an example. So Please right about, now, right now, wife yeah, in a loving oh, way. Man. So I'm gonna start releasing a little bit of oxytocin, uh-huh. you know, a little bit of maybe a little dopamine you know, a little serotonin. In the brain. Yeah.
1: Which then yeah. releases- But it also def- depends on
0: the thoughts as well. If it's some sexy thoughts, it might be a little, get a, a little uh, <laughs> adrenaline <laughs> or epinephrine yeah, produced, you know, just like that a little bit more uh, aggression might come uh. forward, you know, it just depends. But also if, for example, we have a a, a a thought where something bad is happening right now, where we're thinking about, you know, maybe we're worried about something that we care about. Maybe they've been in, uh, some type of uh, an incident mm-hmm. of some sort. and But maybe we heard some news about it, but it's not true, okay? So maybe we, we heard that somebody that we love got into an altercation, right? And we're just like, you know, really upset, like, oh my, I, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe whatever. And we can start to produce these chemicals associated with that stress. So much more cortisol, right? So a lot of people know about cortisol. Cortisol is not a bad guy. We've talked about this right, before. Right, right, right. It's a big part of reaction Too much of it hurts you. Especially and chronically. So we start to re- release all these neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, right. hormones, all driving us towards worry, fear, anger, regardless if the situation is real or not. Right. That's the rub. And we make it up. So we can think external. We can think beyond our current circumstances and change our biology. But if our biology is in a
1: tough place, it, it's harder to keep trying to do that so our thoughts shape our biology our thoughts shape Absolutely. our feelings your which thoughts affect- create your body your thoughts create the body so now we get into wow i'm bring, i'm gonna bring her up one more time yes
0: uh caroline's work she's great yeah so we that we had a great conversation about that as mm-hmm. well and actually um uh, an interview that i did with her it came out recently and we got we we we, we put our toes in in that conversation a little bit more because this wow. again this is kind of difficult for us to. To, to think about today because we've been so inundated with the, the genetic dominant theory that right. our genes are controlling our lives. And That's now today, true. of course, I, I believe just about everybody listening has heard the term epigenetics at this point and how these, these are above genetic controls, like epidermis, like your skin, the outermost mm-hmm. part of your skin. So epigenetics is controlling your genetic expression, right? And so humans collectively, we've got maybe 20,000, 22,000 genes collectively but I think that that's going to play out, and you're hearing it here first, I think that that number is not quite accurate. But when they did the Human Genome Project, that's what they discovered. Right. But why are we so different? It's because of the, the, the expression of the genes. There can be a thousand different outpicturings of one gene. And it could code or express what we would deem to be something negative. Mm. But even the negative things are trying to push us towards health. There, our body is always adapting, trying to help us to. Survive. Trying to realign us. and saying this yes. is not good. You need to pay attention to this and fix it. Yeah. Even with obesity, our bodies are trying to save us. They're How are trying, so? trying to save us. So, for example, when we, when we bring in an abnormal amount of sugar, like the way that humans evolved, we didn't have access to sugar like right, that. Right. You know, if it's you come lot. across a, a beehive or something, like you're gonna risk, you're gonna risk getting stunned to get some of that. <laughs> honey, all right. <laughs> yeah. But today we've taken that. It's just here, eat it all day long, it's, everything. It, it is, it's so remarkable how, and for me it's just, it's a
1: very simple principle of biology. <clears throat> when do we start getting sugar accessible in this country? When was, what year or decade was this where it's like, oh, sugar's so, available now.
0: Here's the beautiful thing. Humans have, we've always had a, a
1: hankering for sugar,
0: like through our evolution, we go towards like I said, this, yeah, yeah, we'd we'd go for those things, especially, but also is available for some cultures only certain times a year, for example, and so you would rack up on it Hi, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And now this is an important, tenant as well, because and there's a reason for this. The human brain itself, if we think about the blood-brain barrier that protects the brain, and only allows in certain things, certain nutrients. It only has gates for certain gases like oxygen. For water, only certain nutrients get into the brain. The brain has its own exclusive diet, but there are a lot of sugar gates. Your brain will gladly, confiscate Harvard researchers, uncover this, your, your, your brain will gladly sop up half of the sugar that you take in in a meal.
1: You take 50 grams of sugar, 20, 50% of that, 25 grams sugar. going into the brain. Going into your brain. How is it? Where's it going? Does it go throughout all the brain? Does it go to a section of the brain? What yeah. happens? Is Ooh. it Then it's just filtered throughout and you're just on a sugar high? Yeah. So even the term sugar high, like it sounds, it's kind of funny, but that's not funny. Right. It's
0: not funny because what happens is, so there are these protein gates that allow the sugar to transfer over from the, through the blood brain barrier into the brain itself. And yeah, because many of the neurons run off of glucose. So your brain is like, look, give me that. We got, we got stuff to do. Well, let me, let me take all of it. But what happens is over time is it starts to create insulin resistance in the brain as well, Mm. all right? So this is one of the biggest issues facing our world today. And if we get into the conversation about inflammation, neuroinflammation, I believe is the most troubling issue that we're facing as a society, but it's, it's it's a hidden overlooked issue because the brain is so protective. We don't really know that this is going on until oftentimes it's too late because the brain itself, we talked about the symptoms of inflammation, pain, swelling, burning, the brain itself doesn't have pain receptors. Mm. So your brain can tell you about pain in your in your pinky toe or on your, you know, pain in your neck, but pain within the brain itself, it doesn't have pain receptors. What about like a migraine or something? Is that not? Migraines are not the brain directly expressing pain. Huh. It's, it has a lot to do with, now there is, this is a little bit more complicated. There, is, there, there are some offshoots of things happening within the brain with migraines, let me be clear. So let's just take um, the borderline, migraines are different also. People who experience migraines, they know that it's different, but from a headache. But we'll just take that borderline experience, maybe like a, an acute migraine or a, maybe a tough headache. What it really is is the blood vessels that surround the, the brain, that, that surround the, your skull, mm-hmm. all right, not the brain but that's surrounding your, your neck and your shoulders. Mm. And so muscle spasms and things of that nature can start to kind of cut, cause restriction. Right. So, but there can be some electrical storms taking place in the brain for sure. Interesting. But, anyway, so the brain it, itself doesn't experience pain. So this is why, for example, there's, you know, you can have a brain surgery and not feel like yeah, You're you can be awake, yeah, and it's that's just really like nuts, isn't it? Yeah, so weird. So Wasn't weird. there
1: someone who was like playing violin on a on a brain surgery that like yeah, opened the head it, and just yeah. like to see if she could still play or make sure there was that's like some total recall that's stuff. That's crazy, right? man. Whereas Arnold, yeah.
0: that was crazy. It's some like yeah, it's it's amazing, man. But these these are really <clears> overlooked <throat> simple principles. But going back to that tenet of inflammation, so if the brain can't experience the pain, how do you know when it's on fire? How do you know
1: when it's the inflamed? brain? You don't know. Yeah. Until it's too late. You don't huh? know. But there are downstream symptoms. I'm feeling this in my, my face, my arm, my back, like something, my gut doesn't feel good. There might be a And it's a constant
0: superhighway of the brain-body connection, mm. right? So these researchers at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, they found that neuroinflammation is a double-edged sword for nutritional diseases, met- metabolic diseases, all right? So what that, what that means is inflammation in
1: the brain is one of the primary causative factors of obesity. Ah, and, so when, you're, when you have inflammation in the brain, you're more likely to be obese. And obesity is a causative agent for neuroinflammation. So they both hurt each
0: other. So you're getting into this double-edged sword or vicious circle. And this is why, again, we, we tend to downplay or belittle people who are struggling with obesity, for example, and not knowing. How many programs out there are telling you we need to target the, the inflammation in your brain for you to get well, mm. for, your metopoly- for
1: your metabolism to heal. Yeah, the, the work that Dr. Daniel Amen is doing, which is, you know, he yeah. says the bigger the body, the smaller the brain. Yeah. You know, your brain starts to shrink. I think that's accurate, if I remember. But it's like, <clears throat> and you want to really focus on both, the nutritional side and the brain. Make sure the brain is healthy. And you can heal and recover a lot of the brain from what I'm learning from my scan that I took yeah. there. There are ways to, in, to optimize the brain, even if you've heard it. In a big way, yeah. Right. That's the beautiful part about us, yeah. and Daniel's
0: a, a really good friend. If there's anybody who knows, it's him. He has the biggest database yeah. of spect imaging scans. He's looking at the brain. He's not just making it up. Yeah. And so, this is the, this is a fact. I talked about this in Eat Smart as well. He actually wrote the the cover quote for Eat Smarter. Nice. Uh, man, I'm so grateful to have a friend like him because he's just he's such great. a wealth of knowledge. But um, one of the really interesting interesting thing is that. As your waistline grows, your brain shrinks. That's crazy. Right? So we see that, and uh, particularly the gray matter of the brain is going to be inhibited. There so, many obesity, different- what does
1: that mean? Obesity impacts the quality of the brain. Yeah. And what if 65, 70% of Americans are now obese? That means they have smaller brains, which means they're not going to be able to perform as well. They're going to be more temperamental, they're gonna be more mentally unwell, I'm assuming, have more mental health issues, potentially more depression, anxiety, and stress, and overwhelm based on obesity. Yeah, you said it, man. What this, we, is, I this, mean, is where,
0: this is where this it really gets, how do for we, us, scary, because we often, we look at the, the condition and we just like, and me being in this field, I've been in this field almost 20 years, mm-hmm. and we'll just say, if I got 30 family members, 28 of them are obese. Mm. Growing up, like I grew up around right, obviously, yeah. that, you know. But for me, my genetic cards were a little bit different because I ate worse than everybody. But, but I, I had yeah. asthma, you know, I had gotcha. Um, the, of course, you know about the the, the degenerative disc conditions, yes. you know. So I had advanced arthritis when I was just a
1: baby, really. I was, I was, I was so you had other, You had other uh, painful side effects than obesity. Anyway, by yeah, eating poorly. Expressions, but that fat, my fat genes kicked in. Yeah, eventually, eventually after 25, yeah. 30, you're when starting I, to be like, when, when, I, when I got to 20
0: and I stopped, because for me also, it's always very active as yes. well. And so now I've got this chronic condition diagnosis, so-called incurable, nothing I can do about it. Mm. And now I'm, I am I was given a permission slip to do nothing,
1: you know, and so I
0: that's what I did, you know? So again, to get in that state of learned helplessness.
1: Now, I'm gonna ask something that might be controversial. There's a big movement of the accept yourself, self-love, no matter how big you are, small you are, like just love yourself for where you're at. And, you know, how how do we love and accept people for where they're at without shaming them, but also encourage them to improve the quality of their health so that their brain gets bigger and healthier, so that they can live longer, so that they can perform better because From what I'm hearing, obesity is not something that's gonna make you live longer and healthier. Yeah, I I love this question, man. Because the first thing is,
0: I love it because this conversation is bringing to light the fact that we've been inundated with an idea of what beauty looks like. Mm. We've been inundated with an idea that thin is better. For many years, we've been inundated with an idea that you've gotta look a certain way, you've gotta have a certain, certain complexion, certain eye color, Whatever the case is, to be the epitome of what beauty is, mm-hmm. and human humanity is so beautiful, so diverse, yeah. and so so gorgeous, so magical. You know, there's so much beauty and expression, and there are cultures that are just thicker than a snicker by nature. <laughs> right, you know, right. if you talk about, you know, folks, um, you know, Polynesian cultures, Polynesian culture, area. for example, incredible athletes, and they just. Right out of the gate, it's gonna be a little bit thicker, but that's beautiful. It can mm-hmm. be beautiful, it can be healthy. It depends on your genetics, on how much weight you carry, right. and how healthfully you can carry it. You maintain your insulin sensitivity, the health of your brain, the longevity, the list goes on and on. There are different, and this is one of the things that I really brought to the fold with Eat Smarter is your unique metabolic fingerprint. And a part of that metabolic fingerprint is honoring your genetics, yes. right? And so with that said, shifting the culture right now to honor our diversity and our our variation of what beauty looks like and not being, having this idea that having some body fat is something that's wrong or ugly, that's that's an absolutely terrible thing. The other part, and it's not even a but, it's and, so we have that, that acknowledgement, and we have to understand that if you have insulin resistance, you're pre-diabetic or you're diabetic or you have heart disease, Or you have neural inflammation that we're talking a little bit about. You have allergies and asthma. List goes on and on and on. Advanced arthritis, all these different conditions, all these underlying things that can take place. This is going to, in many ways, destroy your quality of life. Mm. And we want you to be healthy and a a unique expression of what beauty is.
1: Yes. That's it. You don't have to be perfect and have a six pack and have like a certain amount of body fat, but you gotta live a long time. Or if you wanna live happy and healthy and not feel these kind of mental health issues as well, this will help that if you're healthier physically.
0: Right? Absolutely, because that goes hand in hand with all the other things that we're seeing as a society where we're losing so many people prematurely. You know, We're losing lives, but not just that, not just the actual loss of life, but the loss of life where people are still living. Ooh, what do you mean by that? When we fall into these places, I lost my grandmother, the love of my life. The love of my life. Uh, my grandfather, her and my grandfather were an entity, mm. you know. And so, uh, we just had some friends over yesterday, and they were like, w- "You guys are the only married couple that we really that we know that are like." And I'm just wondering how I ca- how we have what I- we have, my wife and I, when I didn't have any examples uh-huh. of a healthy married couple. Like yeah. I just pretty much never seen it, never saw it. But I lived with my grandmother when I was a little guy, when I was a, when I was between the age of about, we'll say, four to eight years old, right? So it was very formative. And for me, that was my earliest memories. And they're an entity and they, and I'm sure they had disagreements, but they ne- I never, I never. all I saw was love. Wow. All I saw wow. was them like his arm around her and just affectionate. She loved him literally to death. And so he ended up having uh, multiple open heart surgeries. Ugh. And he was, you would think again, he was, he was hunting, he was foraging, very like outdoor guy, but he was living under chronic stress in the city. He was a country boy, Mm -hmm. right? And so he was, you know, in this environment, but also when he first, when he was noting like, okay, you got a high blood pressure, he also was a very angry guy, you know? Well, he he dealt with anger, yes, but not towards us, you know, but just his conditions that he came up around. So now this is very important. The physician, based on his preliminatory preliminary uh, blood work, which again I wish I could have been there and to, to be able to intersect this, it was like, okay, you got to cut the fat. You need to switch mm. out that butter and mm. start to have this partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, which is e. Country Crock. It was the first time I saw Country Crock was in my grand my grandmother grandfather's house, and he went from having some blood work issues to having a heart attack. Oh man! To having open heart surgery. Oh. To him dying early.
1: Was he obese
0: or no? No, he looked incredibly fit. Wow. But that was his Do you think think it was more stress or the nutrition? Primarily stress, I feel. Stress and then also the nutrition that was added in on the recommendations of- Didn't help. Right, so we're going from something that's, quote, natural that humans have been having for centuries to something that was brand new and invented, you know, and all the fat. I remember my grandmother getting him like the low-fat peanut butter, Mm -hmm. and I remember uh, once I got older, I, I went to their house, I looked at it, it, was fu- it said fully hydrogenated um, vegetable oil in the peanut butter. And so it's like, it's basically exposing it to more hydrogen to try to create, to extend the, the shelf life of it. It kind of mm-hmm. makes like a, in a strange way, a vegetable oil plastic out of it in this yeah. sense. But anyways, so bottom line is this, and I'm, I'm glad I got a minute to talk about this because it's, it's, it's tough to talk about, but, she she was around for a while she was there at my wedding i felt like she stayed wow (sighs) i felt like she stayed to make sure that i was in good hands you know wow um but shortly after that she died from a a overdose she was uh depressed i didn't know really um and you know with with the story goes you know i don't know if she did it on purpose or not but you know, she she took her medication and she died um, shortly after the wedding. Or, yeah, not not too a long. After. Or maybe something. you know, maybe a year later. Yeah, but you know, I lost and I lost the love of my life outside of my wife to depression. Mm. And you know, when he left here, like really, her identity was so tied to oh, him. Man. You know, she loved him so much. Man, yeah. So when I'm talking about this stuff, but also her health was going down as well. And I'm just now really starting to hit my stride in understanding this field and helping a lot of people. And, you know, I didn't know, like my grandmother had diabetes. She had this, she had this, that issue. She had like the whole pill cabinet. Oh man! And for me growing up in it, it was normalized, you know, and yet we're we're treating symptoms. And so when we're not in a good state of health, the, the depression, it is just, It's more, it can be more invasive. Yeah. It can be harder to deal with. They come together. So it's hard to deal my with, point it's hard that, to get out of it. Yeah. My point that I want to share is when we're venturing into these outward states of inflammation, because even our fat cells themselves are an inflammatory factor. Mm. They're essentially, they're putting out a distress signal that's letting your body think in a sense that you're infected and the fat cells themselves are creating inflammation, mm. right, and if we, if we talked about that again, that systemic chronic inflammation, it's just literally checking all boxes for a bad event to take place, whether it's depression, whether, which depression, now we've got sound data on it having inflammatory component, depression, heart attack, stroke, dementia, the list goes on and on and on, and a big catalyst for this, about 400,000 people die each year from obesity-related
1: conditions, really? and it's just a footnote. Is that like they have type two diabetes, or they give stress, or they have heart attacks because of obesity, or what are those right. main? So these
0: are comorbidities,
1: uh, right? So these are comorbidities. They're obese, but they die from something else, right? Right. But that's there. Four hundred thousand yeah. people every year. Every year, yeah, yeah. It's be, you think if they weren't obese that they wouldn't die. The obesity is a,
0: it's it's kind of fueling the flames. Of the inflammation, for example. Mm. It's fueling the flames of the metabolic dysfunction. Right. Right. So, you can still look healthy and die of a heart attack. You hear that sometimes right. where it's like. But today it's the exception, not the rule. Right. The majority of the time, right, right, right. it's related to being overweight and obese. To, it's
1: probably with stress or some type of like inner, you yeah. know, stress. Maybe you don't look unhealthy, but inside you're not able to deal with anger or resentment or stress or shame or whatever it is. Your thoughts are creating chemistry in your body. Man. Period. crazy, isn't it? It is not it? It is. It's powerful, man.
0: It's powerful. But, you know, this really ties in well with this topic of cognitive function. Yes. Because we talked about neuroinflammation, but specifically the research were indicating hypothalamic inflammation. So What's that's that? inflammation. The hypothalamus is it it's really been considered the master gland of the of the human body. Where in is many it? Instances. So it's in your brain. Okay. It, it's 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 in your brain, but So I think the best description is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So we've got this HPA axis, and there's so many other glands upon that axis, even the thyroid. And so the hypothalamus is kind of like in the boss's office, in a sense, right? But I would argue that it's not necessarily the boss because everything is working together. Mm -hmm. But the reason that it's considered a master gland is that the hypothalamus integrates your endocrine system, the production of all your hormones, with your nervous system which is like sensing your environment, your internal external environment wow. based on that data and that feedback, integrating the two. And your hypothalamus is also controlling even calorie absorption. It's in constant contact with your gut. And so the, the vagus nerve is linked up here as well. And so based on your assessment, your brain's assessment of, and also your gut of your caloric needs, how much energy you have stored, your, your brain could tell your gut to increase the absorption of calories from the food or decrease the absorption of calories from food. And so we wow. talked about this last time about
1: these- So anyway, your brain can tell your gut when I'm eating all these calories, don't absorb these calories, just let them go out. Yeah, essentially, so it, it can downregulate it, or but it's not it gonna be
0: like you can just eat a donut and you don't absorb anything, you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: That'd be amazing, if you, could your mind actually do that though? Do you think the Anything mind can is control possible. and Anything say, is I'm going to have 1500 calories right now with this ice cream and donuts and nothing is going to be absorbed in my body. It's going to go out <laughs> to me and you just manifest you just decide and declare no. It's not entering my body. It's Didn't going... you firewalk? I did, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> so like and I, think I think did it possible.
0: too. I did it too. It is possible. Yeah, and I actually a friend of mine she stepped on a coal that was not in the fire pit and she burned had, herself. Yeah, Jamie, she Jamie Masters.
1: She wasn't in the the right mindset, probably. Right. She wasn't.
0: She, she just accidentally. It was like right there, just kind of like sitting there for a minute, burned and, her. and burned her. But anyways, and we walked across that stuff, man. So hypothetically, it could happen. Right. But here's the thing. Let me let, let's dive in a little bit deeper on what yes. that looks like. Uh, uh, Ilia Crum, out of Stanford at the time when she conducted this study, she wanted to find out how our thoughts affect our digestion, how our Ooh. thoughts affect how we assimilate nutrients. Give it to me. All right? And this is called the Milkshake Experiment. What love a okay. milkshake, love a good milkshake. <laughs> so they blended up a batch of milkshakes and they were all somewhere around 380 calories. And I detailed this in Eat Smarter uh, a lot more. So it, it might be 360, but it, it, I believe it's three three 380 calories. Now, so the, all the milkshakes are the exact same amount of, of calories, they're the same level in the same containers that they're passing out. Now here's the thing. They take it and now they put labels on them that they are different amounts of calories. Ooh, on one oh, set of uh, on one set of milkshakes, they put that they're 180 calorie right. sensible milkshakes. Right, right, right. And then on others, they put that this is a 620 calorie indulgent
1: Oh my gosh, but they're all right? the same they're calories. They're all the same.
0: Oh they're God. all the same. fascinating. And so what? here's what happened. Well, I think we, we got to get a little bit of the uh, kind of endocrine biology here with basic satiety hormones, so leptin and ghrelin, all right? So leptin is a major satiety hormone, makes us feel um, satisfied, we, we feel um, we're, we're in our body, we're not ravenously hungry, right? When leptin is, is level and also leptin sensitivity, is a whole other conversation. So we got leptin satiety hormone, then we have ghrelin, which is a bonafide hunger hormone, all right? But it's more than that, it's more than that. It also has to do with our me- metabolic rate and other things too. But basically when ghrelin levels are high, it's driving us to go eat something. Mm -hmm. I think about it like the ghrelin gremlin, Mm -hmm. right? Don't feed them after midnight, you know what (laughs) I mean? So the ghrelin gremlin. Now with ghrelin levels going up, that's gonna drive us to eat. But when they're going down, it's gonna make us inherently feel more satisfied. So here's what happened. The people who were given the indulgent milkshakes that were again they were higher calories, same calories. They, they but same, they but they thought they, thought that, they were higher. This is nuts. Their ghrelin levels went down three times lower. What do you mean they were less hungry? They their ghrelin levels, mm. their 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 hunger hormones went down three times lower than what they
1: actually consumed. Their desire to be hungry went down. Right, it went down three times lower. That's crazy. Okay, right. just because they thought they were having a lot of calories. Yes. They thought okay.
0: that they were having something indulgent that was very calorie dense. Mm-hmm. The people who had the ones that were labeled, you know, a hundred calorie sense of shake, their ghrelin levels barely budged. It just it's saved like they were having was. a glass
1: of milk, and they were just like, "I need some more." Like, what? It's like they had water. Water. Wow. And they're like, soon after, they're going to be poured back yet. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because they believed, wow,
1: that the calories were lower in that particular item. That's so. fat. Now I wonder if you believed you had six hundred eighty calories, would you actually? Add on a is that a half a pound of fat? Or like a half a pound? This is getting on a scale? into scale. This is getting into
0: the metabolic effects because it's not just about calories. And we talked about this yeah, last yeah. time. There are these epicaloric controllers. And I detail all of them in Eat Smarter, I detail them. But we talked about how the type of food itself controls how your body holds on to those calories or or burns the calories off. Right. Right? We also go through how your metabolism works, how the process of Fat loss actually works. Like where does fat go? We talked about all that mm-hmm. last time. But so there's these epicaloric controllers. One of them is your brain, for example, but also beyond that is your beliefs about what you're eating because it's going
1: to change the hormonal cascade. Oh, gosh, it's crazy. right? So, so give me an example. If I believe what I'm eating is high in calories, is lots of sugar, is, you know, bad for me, and I think this is really bad for me. That's terrible, yeah. that's terrible. <laughs> so don't, when you're eating this and saying this is horrible for me, um, yeah. instead of keep eating the donuts, what should you be doing the, when you know you have something that's not the healthiest, but you're enjoying the sugar and yeah. the, the cheat That's of the it? thing, that's the beautiful part
0: about it. It's like, Enjoy not, it. for me, being in this space and why I found, I think, a really great lane where we saw so much success with all the patients that we're working with, is because that nothing's off limits, nothing is, we can't, we get into this giving food morality, where something is bad, and if you're eating a food that's bad, oh man, what does that say about you as a person? Ah, uh, right? uh, So I'm, I'm eating this bad food. I must be bad. Oh man, right? I can't control myself eating
1: this. And I'm. We bad. get into these really complex psychological shaming ourselves. Yeah. So, so when you're to eat, best the, thing, when you're going to eat the not optimal foods, just enjoy it. Just enjoy, and enjoy say, it. say, I'm gonna enjoy this. I'm gonna have fun. Tastes
0: good. The best time the best time to eat something that we would consider like a treat or like, you know, we'll just say pizza or Ice cake cream,
1: like, or donut, yeah. Is when?
0: Is when we're feeling good. But we tend to do it when
1: we're feeling oh, it's bad. it's so true. It's when something's not right. going well <laughs> in a relationship so or to something be, at work, we're
0: like, ah, oh, I just wanna. It tends to compound the issue, you know, but also oh, they can man. be, if, if it's done with intentionality, it can be a part of the healing process. That's the thing too, because again, we get so black and white with stuff like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing that. It makes us humans, we don't like rules in a sense. Like it makes us wanna rebel against the thing, you know? And so it can be a part of the process, but we have to maintain integrity because for example, carbohydrates, it's really interesting that, and I actually did a masterclass on this on my show recently talking about uh, natural clinically proven ways to increase serotonin production in our bodies. And so serotonin is a, it's a dual hormone and neurotransmitter. So it has multiple impacts on our endocrine system and on our nervous system. But serotonin is noted to be like this feel good vibe to it. Like when serotonin is optimized, like a lot of antidepressants target serotonin. They're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But it's not making you produce more. It's just trying to reduce the metabolism of it so it stays in your system longer in a Mm -hmm. sense. But that's a whole other thing. So bottom line is this carbohydrates actually increase serotonin levels. Makes right? you feel better. In a sense. Now this isn't 100% true across the board, but it's seen in, in peer reviewed evidence that having a little whack of some, some carbohydrates can actually increase serotonin. A little french fries, you, a little, you know. Yeah, make you feel, get get a little bit ahead of feeling good. So, But we have to put that in its proper place. We've all experienced this, but we think it's the sugar high. Mm. It's not just that, it's what it does to your your, your neurochemistry, it's what it does to your hormones. That's really, it's what so much deeper.
1: What do carbs do to your hormones?
0: Well, it, it depends on the
1: the type the of carbohydrates. The quality of carbs, yeah, you know know I and mean? what time of day and everything. Yeah, so but let's be clear. I mean, Doesn't your brain run on carbs? Like, doesn't it run on like sugar and carbs? So this
0: of? goes back to, and I think this is an important place for us to, to get here, is that the brain, as I mentioned, the blood-brain barrier has A tremendous amount i think about the blood brain barrier being like a a massively complex toll booth and at each of the tolls there's like the best security guard in the world like dwayne the rob johnson or like whoever people want to put in their mind maybe somebody really tough maybe i don't know the hulkster right you know i've been watching these a and e um have you have you seen i've heard they're amazing the the wrestling
1: documentaries i gotta watch these yeah
0: so maybe it's macho
1: man Yeah, yeah maybe
0: he's at the toll booth but he's They're only allowing certain things into the brain's very exclusive area. Sugar has speed passes to get into the brain. As I mentioned, Harvard researchers have affirmed your brain will gladly confiscate half of the sugar you consume in a meal, all right? Now, with that said, what is the blood-brain barrier? How does this play into the inflammation whole complex? So the blood-brain barrier, it is something that is basically around the blood vessels uh, it, it's made from endothelial cells. So, very similar to our cardiovascular system. All right, so we have the endothelial cells. But the difference with the blood brain barrier endothelium is that it is massively higher in mitochondria. So, these are these energy power plants in all of our cells that are kicking off ATP. All right, so these are like the metabolic nuclear power plants in our cells, That's right? right? So your your blood-brain barrier has a tremendous amount of these mitochondria. That's another reason it's so hungry for energy too. To protect your brain, it's running on a lot of energy. It's taking the energy to do that. So we've got the blood-brain barrier, but the blood-brain barrier is one of the major issues that's getting targeted and broken down by the way that we eat today. Mm. So now stuff is getting into the brain that shouldn't be there. Really. So now the question is, what is causing the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier? I'll give you a few of those things. Yes. And creating more inflammation in the brain. One of them, as we already talked about, is sugar. Rap- rampant amounts of sugar. And I don't, I wanna be clear, I'm not trying to demonize sugar. And some people might be like, you should demonize it. It's a part of our culture. And we don't wanna make it so that something is inherently terrible and this treacherous thing, and something else other than is the best thing, All right. So it's, we know that sugar is not ideal for human consumption, this heav- heavily refined process thing. We know that, okay? That we can look at things as good and not so good. It's not so good, all right? Now, with that said, the amount of sugar that we're consuming, it can actually kind of create this insulin resistance taking place in the brain, like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and create neuroinflammation, and break down all surrounding tissues, So, and also cause a big fit for the microbial cells in the brain, the, the brain's immune system. Uh. So. What takes place is, it's even systemic. So diabetes with the rest of our body can cause also offshooting insulin resistance in the brain as well. But the brain itself, our neurons can can begin to become insulin resistant. And so now we've got this sugar just kind of roaming free in the brain and tearing up stuff. All right, so that's a big, big problem. So sugar, okay. number one. Number two, alcohol. Mm, yep. All right, now, again. Man, you gotta, you gotta upset a lot of people. Yeah. I'm not saying people can't drink, but we just have to be, we have to it's, be aware of this that specifically, and there's a lot of peer-reviewed evidence on this now, alcohol is a known neurotoxin, Yeah. Right? And so what it does is, it is able to actually cross the blood-brain barrier. It's one of those things that can oh cross the gosh. blood-brain barrier, which yeah. a lot of stuff can't get into the brain. It's able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And one of the, the first things that happens though is the release of endorphins. It's, it makes like us- like sugar. It makes sense. us feel good. Yeah. So we know that alcohol is a well-established neurotoxin, but we don't see it like that. It's socially acceptable.
1: Very socially acceptable. But
0: a significant amount of people actually pass away each year from alcohol poisoning. And uh-huh. they can be perfectly healthy and just have a little bit too much. And it can affect the parts of the brain that are responsible for breathing, mm. that are responsible for you know um, beating your heart, these are some of the ways that we can die from alcohol poisoning. Now, it's very unlikely, it's highly unlikely that that will happen, but we just got to keep this in place. And as a matter of fact, this was published in the BMJ, one of the most prestigious journals, the British Medical Journal. They found that even moderate drinking can have these very similar effects to accelerating brain
1: shrinkage. Well, this is what Dr. Daniel Ayman has in his brain scans. That I think there was 80,000 brain scan and a test. Don't quote me on that, but that's what I remember, where it's like, he showed the brains without alcohol and with, and I think all of them were smaller, I think, or something like that. Like some were way worse than others with moderate alcohol. Maybe it's like once or twice a week, one or two glasses a week or something, a shrinkage of the brain. And i, I want to find the exact stat of what that is. But I mean, it's like, if we know this information, why do we keep doing it to ourselves? Yeah. And maybe we don't know the information, and that's why we just think it's socially acceptable, and we're going to be with our friends, we're going to have drinks, and yeah. one turns into three, turns into five, and then we can't wake up the next morning. But why do we do it over and over again? I, I've never been drunk in my life. And I'm not saying you're, you, you know, I have nothing against people drinking. But if it's hurting the brain, if you're doing it consistently, more than once or twice a week, if you know it's going to hurt your brain, why continue to do it?
0: That's a great. You just brought it up, which is I don't think most folks actually know. We don't know on. We might know on a superficial level, right? But we people they we haven't had the same amount of education in these things, where it's a part of the culture as much as ignoring health. We're just in an unhealthy state, period. But so in this study, they actually used MRIs and uncovered that even moderate drinking over long term causes significant brain shrinkage, specifically the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain. Now it appears that the amount of shrinkage in the study appears to be directly related to how much a person
1: drinks. Right, now, so if you drink so, once a week, you should be fine. Yeah, I mean, even a couple
0: of times a drink. So moderate drinking would be, even that can be get into the category of we'll say even a four to of, five nights a week, one to two. One glass of wine or something. Servings of alcohol depends on what it is, right? But for some people that might be too much. <sighs> but for some folks, most of the data, what we do know is heavy drinking. Right, but even moderate drinking, we've got to be mindful of our of our brain. Yes, we've got to take that into consideration. I mean, listen, I'm
1: I'm not here to shame anyone because I, uh, you know, probably more sugar than anyone should have uh, in my lifetime, and that's my vice. That's something that it's like on the weekends, like I'm spoiled. You just murdered sugar. the
0: cookies. You were just we were murdered just at my cookies, house. <laughs> man. I murdered your cookies,
1: and uh, what <laughs> I have like seven, eight cookies. I don't know. So it's like I'll give myself a couple of days where it's like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do, yeah. and I don't beat myself up for it because I know the rest of the time. I'm not doing that. So some people might do that with alcohol and that's fine. Sugar is going to hurt me or create more belly fat. It's going to be harder to like get rid of the belly fat, all these other things. And I'm aware of it. So it's like, how can I continue to optimize? How can I continue to let go of that habit and, and replace it with something more powerful and empowering for the greater version of myself, for my vision, for my health and happiness? And when I have it, enjoy it, but don't. Don't do it too much, you know. But that's the secret too, man, is that we also
0: had an abundance of of, of real food as well, you know. So at, at my place is where you first, yes, like, man. you didn't just, you, you tried guacamole recently pro- right. I previously.
1: once before with a friend. And yeah. I was like, wow. You just okay. dabbled in it. But Dabble, now. But yours, I like,
0: yeah, and a lot yeah. of it you, man. Got
1: it, you got that guac in you, I man. I liked it. And you Your know, my wife made it amazing though. It was like, I don't yeah. think I can have normal guacamole. Yeah. I think it was like, it's got to be seasoned the right way, you know. It's, a, it's an eat smarter. It's, it's, it's Is the that the way the recipe? it is? so good. So, I
0: was very growing up the way that I did. I never, I didn't know what avocados were. No, like, I had no hot dogs idea. And until I was in and my twenties. Hot pockets, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, honestly, man, you know, I ate fast food every day. Yeah. As long as I had like $2 at least really, every man. day in, and I was and in college. Um, but it also is just in the environment. You know, the closest thing to to me was mm-hmm. a liquor store. Then you know, Lee's Chicken, Domino's, McDonald's, <sighs> Burger King, mm. uh, Dairy Queen, mm. Chinese food restaurant. But this was like bulletproof glass. Like they're mm. not cooking good stuff for yeah. you. Um, yeah. Arby's. Uh, Krispy creams, oh, Jack man. in the Box. This Krispy is all within like a mile radius of Krispy my house, wow. and I'm, that's not even all of them. Papa John's. Everything. I can go on and on and on yes. in multiple directions. There wasn't a gym around me. I didn't. That, that wasn't a part of the environment. You know, being from Ferguson, Missouri, that's where you know I, went up. I spent my uh, my entire time you know in college, and also just even when I got married, you know, we're mm-hmm. still in Ferguson, Missouri. Wow. Ferguson, Florissant. For the majority of my adult years, actually, I was in Ferguson, Florissant. And so we just didn't have, we weren't exposed to what health looked like. The first time when I found out that a Whole Foods existed, like it's so far away from me, but there was only one in all of St. It's Louis, a, by the way. And now you live like three blocks from one. You could, in, in LA, LA <laughs> you can literally throw a rock and hit a Whole Foods. I know. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I'm not used to this. It's amazing, I'm just right? not. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's upgrading. But the thing is also we can get this conversation of being fashionable right. and being about real health. Because there are, there are some definitely some challenges on what real health is here in this city as well. Sure, sure. You know? So, But anyways, that's a, that's a so little sidebar. So sugar,
1: alcohol, which is a neurotoxin, uh, what's another thing that uh, increases inflammation? Another one, and this
0: is really interesting, and this is very timely for this. That what I was actually gonna lead into uh-huh. was right now being aware of what real health is in the prevention and susceptibility to viral infections. Viruses can damage and break down the blood-brain barrier, create inflammation in the brain. I mean, a virus. Listen to this. So this was published in the peer-reviewed journal Trends in Microbiology. Found that viruses can directly disrupt and damage the blood-brain barrier. But here's what I wanted to share with you. And this is new. I just, um, I'm sharing this for the first time. This was published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. And it found that there's a troubling discovery recently that SARS-CoV-2 is able to interact with the blood-brain barrier and enter the brain itself.
1: Right. What does so, that mean?
0: How do you get how do you get it out of the brain? That's the thing. Once it gets in there, it doesn't even matter. Like, what is what are the downstream effects of that? So this this virus is able to make its way to basically traverse the blood brain barrier somehow. Maybe the blood brain and this for me I always think of a meta perspective. Like, who are this? What are the samples? Oh
1: uh, yeah.
0: Right. Like, what is the state of health of the person? Uh, what is their blood brain barrier health? Stuff, yeah. How is it able to traverse the blood brain barrier and mm-hmm. get into the brain, mm-hmm. or is it just this? this virus is this particularly nefarious, right. you know what I mean? And so the question is, you know, what do we do about this in defense? We have to be as healthy as possible. We know that even though the marketing around this is that this particular virus is indiscriminately hurting people. But I, I think maybe we shared this when I talked with you last, I'm not sure, but I think it's an important point. You know, I've got many family member and friends who are in the healthcare industry and even working on the, the front lines and we, we tend to think that, of course, number one, they're gonna be hardest hit. It would be obvious if you think about it. They're around it all day long. Right, and they're, these are just absolutely amazing folks. However, what folks don't realize, and we can maybe put people the link to this in the show notes for people, because this is what I do, I'm a research scientist, You know, almost 20 years in this, in this space. If you go to the CDC site and you look at who is actually being affected, because with healthcare, healthcare workers, it is the biggest vocation being affected. If we're talking about job for job, by SARS CoV 2. But what's not shared and what's on the CDC site is that nine out of 10 of the healthcare workers hospitalized with COVID 19 had at least one pre existing chronic disease. Ooh. It's not two out of 10, it's not five out of 10, nine out of 10. Nine out of 10 had a pre existing
1: chronic At least
0: one. Wow. So it's not indiscriminate, okay? <laughs> yeah. Because we've got, at this point, people have got the PPE, there's still a susceptibility. And the other part is about 75% of them were clinically obese. And it's right there. The CDC is where people, if you post anything, talk about mm. it's getting directed to the CDC. But most people are not analyzing the data on the CDC. I love it. Right. I love it. But also it's highlighting, again, the thing that's not getting addressed, which is let's get our citizens healthier. Healthier. When are we going to talk about helping to reduce this epidemic, these <clears throat>
1: multiple epidemics? Pandemics is an epidemic expanded kind of, multiple places. What is the epidemic? Is it neuroinflammation? Is it obesity? What is the, the main causes in your mind that is hurting us? Yeah. We have an epidemic of chronic disease, period.
0: Chronic we disease. We have an epi- epidemics of, for example, an average of 630,000 people die from heart disease every year here in the United States.
1: 600,000? 600, 630,000. Die from a heart disease? Heart disease. And what causes heart year. disease? Stress, obesity, neuroinflammation, what else? It's a complex yeah. disease. Yeah. It's the number
0: one killer. It's crazy. But here recently, and this is fo- the unfortunate thing is that this is a footnote. It's not even talked about. 2020, when SARS-CoV-2 was the, the, the headline, almost 700,000 people died from heart disease. It jumped up significantly. Really? Because of the stress. Because of all things, all wow. of it. Wow. Absolutely. Stress, disconnection from you know Loved family. Ones. Yeah, wow. Uh, we're, we're eating worse than we ever have prior to the pandemic. Because I was there. I was analyzing the, the numbers right out of the gate. The first couple of months, I was looking at processed food companies. I was looking at their profits. Oh, they're probably spiked. One company was about to go out of, one of the big ones was about to go out of business. And then they're filing for bankruptcy. COVID shut saved up. up. Gyms closed. Well, people people were weren't out. So people not getting sitting around at home. home, you're
1: getting Postmates or you're getting Uber Eats yeah. or whatever it is delivered to you all day. We are
0: now far worse. We are now far sicker and more susceptible to viral infections than when it all started because we still have not focused on health. And we can do all the superficial treatments. You know, we can do the distancing, we can do fill in the blank. Right. But we also, because we were in fear, because people were so influenced by what the quote experts were saying, we could have also said, this is an important time for you to really make sure that you are getting your sleep because your sleep is a primary controller of your immune system. Even with medical interventions, and people taking a, a, an array of drugs whatever yes. type of drug they might be whether it's a oral medication uh-huh. injectable and their ability to actually prevent the disease dramatically goes down when people are sleep deprived when they're sleep deprived wow yeah. because your immune system is a it's it's largely regulated the vast majority of our immune system is taking place is located in our gut for example and one of the things that we've noticed is that there's even a changing of the guard that takes place with our microbiome, even as the day goes on. The microbiome is so easily influenced by small things. I mean, if you, if you sneeze, like your microbiome is gonna make a shift, you know? But really? when we're sleep deprived, there are some really negative things that take place. And one of the, the studies that I actually mentioned is they took test subjects and they wanted to see what would happen when they just cross a bunch of, of time zones and see what would happen with their microbiome. And so they took stool samples, You know, had them poop in a little nacho basket, that's how we do it. We could send you one in the mail, you could send it in and get a stool sample done. But they took stool samples and they analyzed their microbiome cascade. Because one of the things that we know today is that there's a microbiome cascade that's associated with obesity, insulin resistance. Interesting. So when people, in my clinical practice, they can get a, um, uh, a stool sample done, I can get the report, I can have a high probability of knowing what their body composition is just based off their bacteria cascade, whether or not they're obese. And so, so we know this now. And so what they did was, and these are healthy test subjects, and then they have them cross a bunch of time zones and they retest them. So it was like a 10 hour time difference. And they found that the bacteria basically get this kind of very strange jet lag. Really? And their bacteria cascade started to shift more towards one that's associated with obesity and insulin resistance yeah.
1: just in a day. By traveling across yeah, time zones. Just in one day. So what should we do when it travels Because
0: also, I, I didn't yeah. mention this, their sleep is disrupted as oh, a result. They're not sleeping because of it. Right. Yeah, so their sleep is disrupted less. as a result. But the good news is just by them getting back onto a routine within a couple of days, it normalized. So it, we, gotcha. can, we can get better, but we know how quickly we can, things can go wrong. And this is another big part of this equation because there was a lot of pushback ha- happening in the be- beginning, You know, even with uh, many of my friends and colleagues who are just at the top level of the health space of like, well, you know, we just have to do these superficial things because we can't get people healthier overnight. Oh, and here we are, we're going on two years here soon. Right? We're about a year, we're over year a year and a half, and a half into yeah. this. And the conversation has not shifted to getting, what are some of the clinically proven things, simple things people can do to fortify their immune system and help to reduce their risk of chronic diseases because we know that is the number one thing. What are those it's things? The number one risk, what are thing, are those, risk what factor. Those,
1: sleep, healthier foods, fasting, intermittent I'll give you a, fasting. I'll give you an
0: example. More water, what's the? Based off peer-reviewed evidence. So researchers at Appalachian State University uh, found that simply just going for a short walk. In nature? or Instantly, just, just anywhere, just go for a 20, 30-minute walk, boosts your immune parameters, most wow. notably for neutrophils and also natural killer cells. Wow. Right, it's a temporary boost. Yeah, 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 But what if you're doing this consistently? Like, America, make sure that you, you know, um, you, you wash your hands, socially distance, but also make sure you get in your, your 20 minute walk today, America. Right. We can create an absolute wow. transformation in
1: our culture because people to do it. Get get five, uh, one thousand steps. Right. Then screw ten thousand. Get a thousand steps in. Right. Something. If that is, if this is, if this is framed as
0: a way to help you to defend your body from mm-hmm. this nefarious condition, which it is, we know that the, the biggest susceptibility, I'll share this with you as well. Um, and this again, it's on the CDC site. 90, 90, over 95% of the people who passed away with SARS-CoV-2 on the death, death certificate had an average of four pre-existing chronic diseases and or comorbidities. Really? Four. 95%? Not over 95% had, had an average. four
1: pre-existing and conditions. And or
0: comorbidities. So it's not just What's a comorbidity? So this is, it could be They have SARS-CoV-2, but then they also have influenza. They have SARS-CoV-2, but they also have pneumonia, Uh right? So these are all comorbidities. Gotcha. But we know that at least one pre-existing chronic disease across the board is included in that. Now, what about the chronic disease? What we focus on though, unfortunately, is just the people that are quote perfectly healthy. Right. So less than 5%. And showcasing these people and be like, look, this person died too. And so we don't talk about the underlying issue, which yeah. is again, getting people healthier. But here's the thing too, which the the perfectly healthy aspect, that's all still gonna be debatable because uh, you and I can be as healthy as we wanna be. If we are in a state where we're really stressed, we're in fear, we are, you know, in a in a position where we are sleep deprived temporarily, our immune system can absolutely get trampled. Hei- heightened or and whatever. it's gonna increase our risk, uh, our susceptibility to viral infection. We've got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Neuroplasticity, the ability of the human brain to grow and adapt and evolve and really to unlock our superhuman capacity, is driven by our experiences, our practices, our activities, but also our nutrition. Fascinating new research published in the journal Neuron found that magnesium, this key electrolyte, is able to restore critical brain plasticity and improve overall cognitive function. Again, neuroplasticity is the ability of our brain to change and adapt. Now, this is one key electrolyte, but it works in tandem with other electrolytes like sodium. Sodium is critical for maintaining proper hydration of the human brain. If you didn't know this, the human brain is primarily made of water. We're talking somewhere in the ballpark of 75 numbers of 80% water. It's so important because Just a small decrease in our body's optimal hydration level. What's noted in the data, just a 2% decrease in our baseline hydration level can lead to dramatic cognitive decline. Helping to sustain and maintain proper hydration levels in the brain, sodium is critical in that. And also, researchers at McGill University found that sodium functions as a, quote, off-on switch for specific neurotransmitters that support our cognitive function and protect our brains from numerous degenerative diseases. Right now, the number one electrolyte company in the world is delivering a gift for new and returning customers. With each purchase of Element, that's LMNT, the number one electrolyte in the market, no binders, no fillers, no artificial ingredients, no crazy sugar and sweeteners. My friend's son was just over at our house and my son, my oldest son, Jordan, was training them, taking his teammates through some workouts. And we opened the freezer and there's a bottle of
1: Gatorade.
0: There's a bottle of Gatorade in our freezer. And my wife's like, who's is this? Because we know we don't roll like that. We don't mess with the Gators, all right? We don't mess with the Gatorades. And we knew who it was, it was one of his friends. And he came and was like, well, at least this is the no sugar kind. And then I go through some of the ingredients with him and I find those curveballs of like, here's where they're sneaking in these artificial ingredients and things that the human body has no association with. But you know, it's he's taking a step in the right direction by being in our environment. So you know what I did? I put the element in his hand. All right, make sure that he's got the good stuff, the very best stuff. And also, this is backed by peer-reviewed data and a huge body of evidence. When we're talking about folks at element that's lmnt go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model and you're going to get a special gift pack with every purchase whether you're a new or previous customer or element so again this is a brand new opportunity free gift pack with every purchase over at element go to drinklmnt.com
1: forward slash model and now, back to the show. This is what I was to you about. When I was a kid growing up, my dad wouldn't allow us to, um, he would turn the TV or he would mute it if there was ever medical commercials on. Mm-hmm. If there was ever drug commercial, things like that, or alcohol. He actually would mute or turn the channel so that we wouldn't be susceptible to all the different messaging of the medical industry. If you're feeling this, if you're feeling this, you need X, Y, and Z medicine. And he really believed that that was causing a lot more fear in, in us, kids, when yeah. we would consume and watch this, this uh, commercial, this messaging, this influence over and over, because it was pretty much every other commercial was like a drug commercial, from what I remember.
0: Because he, <laughs> he
1: was always turning it off. Yeah, he was always turning the channel because he wouldn't want us to be consumed by fear. What about the chronic disease, if that's even considered that, of fear in the country and in the world you know, we could be as healthy as possible, but if you have fear in your mind consistently thinking, I'm gonna get this or ah, I gotta protect myself, what about eliminating fear? How do we do that?
0: I love you. This is why, like this is Let's going go right, right to, to listen, listen, I have not shared this yet. Bring it. This is from the CDC, and so they were looking at five million almost five million, four hundred and eighty four four million eight hundred and ninety-nine thousand four hundred and forty-seven hospitalized adults and 540,667 patients with COVID-19, of whom 95% had at least one underlying medical condition. But let me tell you the strongest risk risk factor for death when they actually contracted the virus. The strongest risk risk factors for death, and this is according to the CDC, and this is these for folks listening and even you know watching. Some of this stuff is seeing is believing. So we've got to put this in the show notes for people to be able so to So you, you can see
1: the actual notes from the study. You can see the study. Yeah.
0: The strongest risk, risk factor for death, number one was obesity, which we've already talked about. Number two was anxiety and fear-related disorders. Oh my gosh. Number three was diabetes, uh, diabetes with complications. Oh my gosh. Fear the second- anxiety-related issues.
1: Wow. That was the number two reason for death. Number two. Based on the CDC. Number two, risk f- risk factor. Risk factor. Associated, Associated with death. Associated. Associated. Oh, wow. Risk factor. Okay. Man. And how much of that has to do with the brain and mindset?
0: Nobody's talking about this. What happened during the past year and a half? Has oh our fear levels gone up or down? Oh, in general, up. Exponentially. Yeah, yeah. Exponentially. And this gets into the place oh. of ethical information, you know, with the media. Wow. And, you know, some folks might have seen, seen some of the exposes done on, you know, some of the news organizations getting caught on like a hot mic, for example, and admitting that they're putting right. the death
1: toll. The CNN, I think, yeah, or I, something. I yeah, that. I, I yeah, I shared like, that, I was like
0: the first person, I packaged it up. Now, I, I didn't do the report though, Right. right but right. I just created like this viral thing because I did some of the science behind oh, what was happening oh, as well. Man. So they admitted to putting up the technical the director. Count right yeah the death the, the, the death, death toll. toll ticker on there taking human lives and turning it just into a death toll anxiety ticker. you see that going up like every moment they admit it, like he admitted to more... doing it because it drives fear and it keeps people watching oh my he gosh. Admitted it with his own mouth you know and so and also one of the things i put into the, the culture very early on i also had the counterbalancing thing which is like we can i want to be informed but we don't have to be inundated also share the recoveries right let's have a recovery ticker let's have a people who are you know who have um asymptomatic who, who might've contracted the virus, but they're not sick and they're okay. Their immune system did what it was supposed to do. Let's have that ticker as well. And I put that in the culture and the person who was capturing the data, she asked him that. Like, why don't you have a, a recovery ticker as well? He's like, he thought about it for a minute.
1: He's like, well that's, well, that's not scary. It's not scary. People won't watch. We need to make money. That's it. We're trying to get eyeballs. If we get it,
0: if we get down to what it's really all about and the corporate interest now, because news isn't news anymore, it's entertainment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks don't realize that nearly every, practically every major news station shares at least one board member with a pharmaceutical company. It's crazy. And the pharmaceutical industry invests billions, billions of dollars every single year into media. Billions of dollars. What are are they going to do are they going to recommend, you know, have me on, which I've been on all the major news, right. news networks, right. but people aren't tuning in for that. Right. They're not tuning in to hear me talk about, you know, wow. drinking water and getting sleep, Man. you know what I mean? But I still do that stuff just to plant some seeds, but truly people are tuning in to be inundated with fear, catch the sports and the weather. And he also shared that they also, 90% of the content that they do is around fear, fear-based content, but then they have a, a, a One nice moment. story. He says like at the end, and he said this was with his words. He was like, "To be like a little bit of ice cream at the end of the of the pain."
1: Oh my god! To help to
0: alleviate the pain, but we're about to hit you with more of it.
1: Oh! Uh, and this is the thing. That's why I don't watch news. Yeah, I the, don't watch the news. I I yeah. might flip it on for a moment to be like, "Okay, what actually happened here?" But I can't consume it for hours. Otherwise, it just makes me feel sick. Yeah. It makes me feel sad, yeah. depressed, frustrated, and I think. I'd rather be informed and educated and be able to take action on what I need to do personally in my life or if there's a a cause I need to support from a place of mission and purpose and intention as opposed to reaction, fear, anger, and reaction. And I think a lot of people have responded with reacting out of a place of fear as opposed to responding from a place of mission, love, solutions, community. And I think if we can start to shift that, we'll just feel better all in all. This is all really pointing to one of
0: the most important takeaways from this conversation, really just in our world today, period, is how we might think that we're controlling the way that we think. We might mm-hmm. think that we are making decisions based on logic, but we have very primal programming as well. And we're very, we're very influenced by the world around us. We're, we're hardwired because it's a defensive mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's helped us to get to this point. We have to be aware of threats. But the, the way that we live today, it's not normal threats. We're not in threat of starvation it's necessarily like of in our threats. culture. We're not, in, we're not yeah. we don't have to worry about a tiger these, out there. Yeah. What, what it really is, it's a lot of manufactured fear. Gosh. Not to say that there aren't real world threats, right. but the, the vast majority of people are safe. safe. But th- you would never know that if you ever turn on the news. And so now here's the problem is that when we're exposed to these things, we take it with us. This Mm. was published in the International Journal of Behavioral Medicine. And people were instructed to watch just 15 minutes of the news. And they were actually tracking their mood disturbances, tracking their metrics. And they ended up having increased levels of anxiety and mood disturbances. But that's nothing, here it is. The most shocking part is, even after distracting them with another activity, after watching the news, they were not able to return to their baseline levels of mood. They, were, they, they, they picked up that anxiety, the mood disturbance, and it, they took it with them. Wow. That's I, the thing that we don't really think about is that it really does, especially if it's, it gets deep driven, it, it starts to change our our, our chemistry, it, ch- it changes our biology, and it also can change our brain because we're thinking thoughts when we're seeing that stuff. How thinking and, 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 and things thoughts really get created is it's like taking something that you don't know and connecting it to something that you do know. So a, a fear thought, a strong fear, is gonna connect with a lot of other fear instances mm, that you have already yes. in your filing cabinet. Other fears, it's gonna yeah, stack. It's gonna start stacking. And this is, we tend to see this happen, like if we play this out in relationship context, you know, like if you get into it about one thing, it gets tied to all the other problems that you have with the right, person. Right. You know, like is this, it's one of the, but we can use that for our good as well and understanding how we learn stuff. And even how I teach, I like to take something that people might be aware of and then connect it to something that is new. Mm -hmm. You know, so in Eat Smarter, I take people through and teaching them how the fat loss process works by giving an analogy of going to the movies. You know what I mean? So, but on the other side, if we're not aware that this is taking place, that we're getting this exposure of fear, it's changing our neurochemistry and our perception of everything. It's getting, it's coloring the way that we see the world and it's connecting to all the other fears that we have. Not all the other fears, but other fears especially when we're talking about imminent death, you know, for you know, what the media perceives, the, rea- the reality is very different. Now, this is something that we definitely need to be aware of, be cautious of, because even the, the origin of it is complicated. Like yes. we're still, there was a time where even if you talked about the origin being other than what was disseminated in the beginning, people were getting censored and all this yes. crazy stuff and we're not having logical, rational conversations about science. That's not science. Science is open. Science is constantly looking, and this is the key, this is gonna sound absolutely nuts. And I, a big reason why I feel that I'm in this space at this level is because I'm willing to be wrong. Mm. Like I'm coming into it, actually, I'm coming Hoping into it. you're wrong. Yes, yeah. I know that I have a cognitive bias. I know that I have cognitive biases towards what humans have done the longest. And so if anything comes up against that, right? So for me, it's just like, okay, well, humans have been, been eating real whole foods for, you know, countless, you know, centuries and, and, and you know, thousands of years and a tweet. Now we got a Twinkie, right? right? So it's just like, <laughs> well, maybe the Twinkie, for me, my cognitive bias is that Twinkie is probably not ideal. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Right. And I'm open because this Twinkie might, it might have unlocked some genetic, whatever, dormant thing where we now we're like, I don't know, we can teleport or something. Right, right. I, I'm open to being wrong, but my bias is there. So, but I have to come into it with my bias and look for the ways that I'm wrong. It's hard to do, but it's like a muscle. Eventually you get to a place where, you know, it's, it's beautiful, it's like a joyous thing. And also when you embrace that, funny enough, like you, you, you don't end up being wrong as often because you're mm-hmm. taking a meta perspective. You're looking at all the pieces. And so what I tend to share from is like, what does the majority of evidence say? And this is a big thing too, and I'm glad I get to talk to you about this and share this. Just about every single thing you can find that has peer-reviewed evidence on it, you could find
1: something that says the opposite. Sure, so it's like a documentary that shows like veganism is the way, and then it's like, well, meat carnivore is the only way, meat. and liver is the way. You know, it's like there's yeah. science on proof and evidence on both sides of right. the extreme, in right? in each person, each
0: uh, front person forward is going to believe wholeheartedly that their way Absolutely. is the right way. They're gonna find and the evidence not, that backs it. And oftentimes they're not trying to be hurtful or nefarious. That's the that's the thing. We have to come into it with a little bit more compassion yes. for for our teachers as well. Because and I know a lot, I know a lot of these guys, these are my, my friends and colleagues, but there's degrees of that, by the way, but also they've seen the majority of time they've seen incredible results with patients they've worked with. And they're trying to save lives. And it might sound absolutely harebrained and crazy to these other people over here, but that's where they're often coming from it from, coming from that place. Not to say that's 100% true, but here's the thing. I know that there's also a lot of people that are doing their thing, and they're not getting the results that the other people are getting. Right. And this is because we're all so unique. Ooh. There is no one human diet. Right. The only thing that we know for certain is a human food is, is breast milk. <laughs> Everything else we're just experimenting with. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even, oh, this is a good segue actually, because people are so, we're inundated with these ideas, for example, like saturated fat being so terrible for you. Human breast milk, there's a massive amount of saturated fat in breast milk. It can be upwards of 30 to 50% saturated fat wow. for building that baby's brain. It's now, as we get older, our gates for saturated fat from our our food, like I said, we have the blood-brain barrier, the, the gates that allow in saturated fat actually go down but um, also breast milk has a significant amount of cholesterol Mm -hmm. also. And when there's a disruption with cholesterol synthesis for babies from their nutrition, this can lead to long-term degenerative neurological disorders. Mm. Cholesterol is incredibly important. So this gets into this conversation of these three primary fats that the brain is made of that I don't think a lot of people realize. Yeah, so we've been talking about inflammation. But the, the, the underlying thing is really looking at what are the sustainable materials that don't allow for fires to take place in the first place. So three, three good fats to help the brain. Three fats. These are three types of structural fats I'm gonna share with you. That, okay. it's, this is different from dietary fats specifically, it. but we can get the, the foundational elements from our dietary fats. Got it. So the human brain itself is primarily water, which we gotta come back and talk about this right after it's upwards of 79% water, 80% water potentially. It's the most water-dominant organ next to your lungs, all right? It, it is a water-based organ, mm-hmm. all right? So water really matters. But of the dry weight of the brain, all right, so water excluded, the brain is upwards of about 60% fat, all right? We are fat heads. all right? But th- what's, and some people realize this, a lot of people who are versed in health and passionate about health know this already, but what people don't, typically know, a very small amount of people know, what are those three fats? The number one, these are not in any particular order, but there Mm -hmm. there are three. The first one I'm gonna share is phospholipids. Okay. Okay. Phospholipids, it's one of the primary structural fats that the human brain is made of. Phospholipids give our brain cells shape, they give our brain cells strength, they give our brain cells elasticity, Mm -hmm. right? And these are very important characteristics. We want our brain cells to be strong and robust, to be able to handle damage, also to be able to generate and support a lot of energy. right? We want them to be, um, we, we want them to have uh, an adequate shape to allow the functions to happen. We don't right. want brain cells like our brain cells might have, you know, we've got, we've got like the glial, these are astrocytes or something. We'll, maybe we can talk about this in a minute but we've got some cells in the brain that might look like this like star shape, but then this brain cell over here is like, I don't know, looking like an M&M, and it's just like a peanut M&M. It's just like not matching up to the structure that would create robust health. And then also the elasticity, we want the brain cells to be adaptable. And so phospholipids help to support something called signal transduction, which is the brain cells being able to talk to each other, uh-huh. which is kind of important. So phospholipids, now phospholipids, What are the foods that support? Sure, sure. I'll I'll share that, but I wanna share one specific thing because dietarily speaking, bringing in from our diet phospholipids, there's a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, and I I map it out in Eat Smarter. This is like a gold standard of clinical trials because we got a specific implement Mm. and we're seeing what happens. Randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study found that the inclusion of phospholipids helped to improve attention and reaction time when people were under stress. Wow. So they put them under acute stress and phospholipids helped them to perform better. Mm. So they had they noted subjectively also reduced participation anxiety, right? With the inclusion of phospholipids. Wow. All right. So this okay. is some really cool stuff. So but these are structural facets that the brain is actually made of. Where do we get them? Phospholipids are made primarily out of omega-3 DHA and EPA, all right? And I'll talk about that in a second. But we can also get them directly from certain foods. You're going to find them in uh, fatty fish. You're going to find them in egg yolks. You're going to find them in oats. You're going to find them in uh, foods like uh, spirulina. You're going to find them in, um, you know, uh, fatty cuts of just different fatty type foods as well. So fatty cuts of of, of things like or- beef, for beef, for example, if it's grass fed. And I don't want to get into a place of like what's better you know, a plant, plant version or animal version. I just want, I'm just sharing where you can find these phospholipids. Nuts as well or no? Yeah. Certain nuts, also uh, soybeans. And for some people like soy is going to be like the, 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 the the absolute joker or Thanos of this situation, you know, just depends on the, I'm just sharing where they are. And please understand, even with the conversation of soy, I did a, full like description and breakdown of the science around soy in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, what, we're, what we've done with soy is not what's been done traditionally. You know, people never like, ate soy dogs, soy ice rice, cream, yeah. soy sandwich nah. slices, soy mm. nuggets and soy like fish. all of that. <laughs> all of this heavily refined processed soy That's is it. more used in cultures. You know, if you look at yeah. uh, Okinawa, for example, um, you know, as more, a little bit more of a condiment in mm-hmm. a sense, you know, like used to make various things. Yeah. But okay. oftentimes also is it was fermented whenever it was right. uh, used primarily too. So that's a whole other conversation. So phospholipids is one. Phospholipids. But these are some dietary sources you could directly get phospholipids. But as I mentioned, they're primarily made of EPA and DHA. These are two types, docosahexanoic acid and then an pentanoic acid. So DHA and EPA. Okay, cool. Okay. And so... DHA and EPA are two of the most important. These are two of the most important. Like today, I want people to proactively get yourself an EPA and DHA supplement, specifically DHA. It's, like, reason, it's that
1: important. For you. The reason
0: for this, dude. Listen to this. And again, working with Daniel Amen over the years and, and gleaning some of this information, but the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition had folks that include some DHA a supplementation. And just within a matter of months, they dramatically improved their memory, wow. explicit memory. So like remembering, you know, events and things like that. And also they were able to uh, improve their reaction time just by increasing the DHA. Now here's the other part. In mm-hmm. the journal Neurology, they used MRIs to actually look at the brain and they found that people who had the lowest intake of DHA and EPA had the highest rate of brain shrinkage. Oh man. All right. Okay. So what they found, the number is f- less than 4 grams a day was associated with accelerated brain shrinkage. Mm.
1: Okay,
0: six grams and up Jeez. had the most shrink-proof brain. So okay. DHA, EPA specifically. So where do you get that? Fatty fish, mm-hmm. salmon, salmon roe, but also with phospholipid, same thing, eggs, egg yolks. Yeah. And I learned this from Lisa Moscone, um, neuroscientist. Again, yeah. she's I love her because she's looking at the brain and not just like guessing, yes. but she shared with me that in the egg yolk itself, there's 10,000 milligrams of phospholipids per 100 gram of product. It's, it's wow. the most power-packed source of phospholipids. Wow. Okay. But then also, she shared with me that DHA and EPA, you're gonna find far more in the fish eggs than in the fish itself. Mm, caviar, right? Caviar, salmon roe. Yeah, wow. all right So yeah. it's not again. This is not to say to go out and you know drop a a, a heavy buck on some caviar right, right, right. And, and be like I don't know lifestyles of the rich and famous, <laughs> but. Okay. But for some people, that might that might be the thing. That's the phospholipids. What's number two? So EPA, DHA. So fatty fish, salmon, mackerel, sardines. Gotcha. We've got. Well, oh, EPA, uh,
1: DHA is two. Right, and gotcha. phospholipids too. I thought it was one. Okay, so one so and DHA and EPA make phospholipids. Gotcha. Gotcha. We gotcha. Can also gotcha. Get gotcha, gotcha. From our diet. Okay. Cool. So, and I'll just
0: rattle off a couple of other ones for the phospholipids because this is important. Like also for folks that are vegan, we've got to include everybody. Yes. So. Uh, from there, most of the peer-reviewed studies are, are done using fish oil. Now that's a, there's a little bit of controversy there, uh, but I just want to make that clear that most of these studies are done using fish oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can also from here krill oil. Yeah, I hear that's uh, so good. Yeah. K R I L L krill oil. That might be a viable option for folks that might be on that borderline with uh, vegetarian. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And this it's a microscopic keyword microscopic shrimp. This is what you know, yeah. whales are consuming, for example, to to, to create their massive brains. Um, But the reason krill oil can be so remarkable is that it's high in astaxanthin, which helps protect the DHA and EPA and keep it from oxidizing. So it's really bioavailable. Mm. And we have peer reviewed evidence that it works. The step from there that's truly vegan is an algae oil. Mm. So at minimum, I want folks to get that like today, because again, if you're not getting in DHA and EPA, your brain is going to have accelerated shrinkage. Oh man. All right, it okay. is that important for the structural integrity of our brain. Got it. When I was running my clinical practice, I knew how important omega-3s were. We just, we'll, we'll just just say 15 years, ago, 15 years ago, people are coming in, I'm getting everybody on chia seed oil, flaxseed oil, hemp seed oil. I'm getting like, you gotta get these omega-3s in everybody. But I was missing part of the story. Ugh. That is ALA, it's not DHA and EPA. It's a, the plant version does not, it. it's not the structural components of the brain. Okay. But it's so important. Your brain can, your body can convert some ALA into EPA and DHA, but you can lose upwards of 90%, 95% of the conversion process. Wow. So you're going to have to be shoveling chia seeds and hemp seeds all day to meet right. your needs. And it's just not, it's, it's not necessary. viable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is why algae oil is so important. And of course, I love chia seeds and flax seeds, all this stuff. You can add that stuff in, but don't be mistaken that it's the same thing as DHA and EPA okay. because it's not. Okay. So that's number one is these phospholipids. And number two, I wanna share with everybody is something called sphingolipids. How do you spell that? That's S-P-H-I-N-G-O lipids. Lipids, L-I-P-I-D-S, I-D-S. I-D-S. okay. Yeah. So, so it's s-
1: the second part, of the second fatty part of the brain. Second type of primary
0: fats found in the human brain. Okay. So we have got phospholipids, sphingolipids. Sphingolipids really function as building blocks for our cell membranes, okay? So this is the membrane around all of our cells. And and by the way, this isn't just for our brain. It's also our entire physiology. These are important, but primarily for the brain, right? Uh, especially for the brain, let me say that. So the cell membrane, if we go back to like biology class, which I hated, by the way, all right? I was not passionate about science until I had to figure stuff out for myself. But we're taught that the nucleus is the brain of the cell. Mm. All right, this is where all the, this, it, where all the, the intelligence is. Mm. But working with cell biologist, Bruce Lipton, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's like the person who really impressed epigenetics into popular culture, he shared with me very early on that in his lab, he was just doing, he was removing the nucleus from cells and the cells just keep doing stuff. They keep operating, they do a lot of their same functions without their so-called brain, right? So it's mm. called enucleation. So if that's the brain of the cell, why does the cell not die? If I take your brain out, you're dead. That's right, it. That's right. the end of Lewis's story. You know what <laughs> I mean? So it's not It's not as cut and dry. This, the membrane, it's brain in the name a little bit, but the membrane right. has a lot of intelligence. And it's working and constantly assessing the environment and sending data to the rest of the, the body. I mean, the rest of the cell, all the internal mechanisms. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of intelligence in that membrane. And that membrane... A big part of that is sphingolipids. All right? Okay. So now here's where this plays out. Sphingolipids can literally change the architecture of the cell, of the brain cell. So what that means and why that is important is what, it can help, it can adjust the cell so that it can do things a different way. And that's important. Like what if you need to, what if you have an injury? How, how does your brain come back? Your brain can find another way. Mm-hmm. It can adjust because of sphingolipids are a big component of helping to adjust the architecture for the brain cells to still do processes, right. All right. So that's sphingolipids. The other big role that they play is in actually cancer prevention because they're regulating cell replication. So cells are supposed to replicate to the hay flick limit is kind of one of the, the, the ways that we look at it. But cancer cells go replicating um, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So sphingolipids help to regulate and check cell growth, and in particular we're talking about in the brain. Right. So thank you sphingolipids for that. There you go, okay. All right, so that's the that's the second type, but sphingolipids also help to make, oh, dietary sources. Eggs, yeah. butter, yogurt, eggs again, man, eggs are, are there again. Uh, cream, beef, funny enough, rice and sweet potatoes as well have some interesting amounts of sphingolipids, all right? So uh, those are a few sources dietarily. But sphingolipids are used to make something called sphingomyelin. Now this is gonna be important for you as an athlete, what we're about to talk about now. So sphingomyelin, so myelin is the protective sheath around our nerve transmissions. So what that means is as we do a behavior, right? So the first time that you throw the handball, right? there's a certain way that you did that and over time you got better and better and became mm. more automatic where you can yes. do it from all these crazy angles, you could yes. do it diving, you could do it behind your, you know, between your legs and all the, the flossy stuff that you do. <laughs> um, but the thing is, over time, more as you're doing the thing, more and more myelin is getting laid down over that nerve trans- transmission, basically insulating it and making it fire faster. Mm. All right, so this is how Steph Curry, for example, the first time he's shooting a basketball versus what he can do today, He's laid down more myelin right. where, the, where the nerve transmission is automatic and he can do it from all these different, anytime, anywhere, right? So same thing with swinging a golf club. It's not practice makes perfect, it's practice makes permanent, all mm. right? So the more you're doing this thing, you're laying down more myelin, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important for everything, not just for athletic performance, but everything that we do, Sure. sphingolipids help to make sphingomyelin, but myelin is combined, the sphingomyelin works with the other, the third type of fat that the brain is primarily made of, which is cholesterol. Wow. Right. So cholesterol is the third one. Okay. And this is another of the brain. Yes. It's another cool. dirty word apparently in nutrition, uh, unfortunately because things become have become so black and white. But cholesterol is so important for the brain that the brain actually makes it itself. Mm. The the brain is the most concentrated area of cholesterol of anywhere else in our body. About 20% of our cholesterol is located in our wow. brain. Wow. It's just making it on demand because it's so important. And cholesterol is actually um, if we, for me, I'm like, well, how the hell does the brain do it? If it's making its own cholesterol, how does it do it? It's the astrocytes. I, I briefly mentioned them earlier. They're these star-shaped uh, glial cells. And the, they can be connected to like two million different synapses for different, mm. uh, different neurons. And just, they're making some magical stuff happen. But anyways, with these astrocytes are, they're the, one of the places that we are that we believe are primarily making cholesterol for the brain wow. because it's so important. And so obviously building blocks of cholesterol we can get from our food, but as I mentioned, your brain is primarily making it itself. How, why does this matter? Last piece is cholesterol is a big component. It's primarily working with your myelin. And if you're not, this, this is also seen in like um, uh, MS, for example. Mm-hmm. There's issues there with the myelin sheath, right? So. This can lead to different health issues, but also it can improve our performance when we have the building blocks to make these compounds.
1: Mm-hmm. So I know this was a
0: lot, but just understanding these different <laughs> three types of fats, how important they are for making up our brain. Our brain is made of this stuff. We got to get out of the politics about which, which food is, is better than other, what dietary framework, and just look at what have humans been doing the longest? What does our brain require? What are the foundational elements for that? And just focus on what's
1: best for us. Experiment.
0: Yeah have fun, share, teach, have a good time, and let's get our, our
1: families healthier. Make sure you guys get a copy of this, get a few copies, give it to some friends, spread the message of health, wellness, all the good stuff, eat smarter. Sean, uh, you shared your three truths in the previous episode, so if you guys wanna see Sean's three truths, check it out there. But your Final, uh, before I ask your definition of greatness, I wanna acknowledge you for constantly showing up, man. You're, you're one of the most dedicated researchers I know in this space. Constantly obsessing over the research, the science Finding the holes in the information out there and then giving us the answers So, this thing is chalked with pages of cliff notes at the end with all the research as well um, Citations and everything, so make sure you guys check this out Again, appreciate you for always showing up, man And being a, uh, you know, being a representation of the way your background, the way you look your attitude on how you can kind of attract more people to this information as well. So appreciate you. My final question, what's your definition of greatness? My definition of greatness is just going off of
0: what you just said, being the model, you know, being the example. Uh, the greatest example that you can give, the greatest way to teach is being it. Absolutely. You know, because when you walk into a room, you are a demonstration, you change that energy in the room that you walk in, as we talked about earlier with that tube taurus, you know, so being the model and you can help to uplift and bring a light into dark places mm-hmm. you know and also as we grow ourselves we become less influenced by the negativity around us as well mm-hmm. I know you've noticed that in yes. your evolution too you know so you can really become uh impermeable to a lot of the, the the craziness that's going on so really work on yourself build yourself up become the best version of you and let that speak and and speak values of you before you even step on the scene mm. so that's for me that's the that's the the definition of greatness is, is being the model, being the example, and also accepting that you don't have to be perfect in being that example. Just be in process. Mm-hmm. Just be working towards getting better because yeah, it, there's always gonna be somebody who is at a, at, at, a, at, a, at a more trying place than you are right now. Mm-hmm. You know, So just being that example because just one person, if you're just five steps ahead of somebody with your health, you can help and reach a hand back and lift that person up. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. If you did, please share it out with your friends and family. You can share this on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and Twitter. I pop in and do a tweet every now and then. And I'm at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And definitely check out my friend's epic show, The School of Greatness. One of the very best shows out there on the podcast platform. Absolutely love, Lewis. And again, I hope that you got a lot of value out of this episode. You've got some powerful masterclasses and epic world-class guests coming up for you very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon.